I think the culture of businesses happens because of the physicality of people being near each other and the serendipity of bumping into somebody at that metaphorical water cooler and having a conversation that they wouldn't have because you don't have conversations like that when it's over video and it's all day long teams calls and i find all day long teams calls is really quite tiring versus being in an office and having lots of micro moments and i think the culture of business is created in that crucible as opposed to virtually Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from an old friend, Robert Chapman. He and I met each other in the late 90s whilst we were both in the CRM business or sales automation space, as we called it then. He was working for Onyx and I was working for a company called Interliant which had acquired the business sales technology, which was a consulting partner of theirs in the UK. We did many of their high-end consulting projects in the UK. And he then left and set up Firebrand. He's going to explain how he set that up and, and how it's worked for 21 years being co-CEO. But they, they're an accelerated learning business. Very quickly, they settled on two things, which was how do we do something differently? How do we add more value quickly? How do we explain that value to clients really clearly? And then how do we build a sales engine? So we're going to talk about those things so that over the last 21 years, he and Stefan have built a fantastic business. And then last year, they exited to BPP, how that was not an accident and what he's done. What was the methodology? You scaling up. So as you know, I'm a scaling up coach from my days at Rackspace and Pier 1 when we'd used Rockefeller Habits. Rob came across scaling up after it'd been published. Friend of ours, Brett Rains, who's the CEO at Cloud Direct had read the book and recommended it to him. And then he and Stefan have used it as a blueprint to accelerate their business growth through to exit last year. So we talk about what's around the corner in the recession and what lessons have they learned going through the last four recessions in their business. What lessons did he bring from Onyx around sales and marketing that he's executed successfully for 21 years? And also, what was the one thing in scaling up? If he could only pick one thing in scaling up, that has he's used to drive his success. What was that? So fabulous conversation and some great book recommendations at the end. Really great to get Rob on the podcast. I feel as though we could have spoken for a few more hours and we could really have dived into people and process. So maybe we'll get him back on again and we'll do that. But great conversation. Love talking to him. I'm sure you'll love it. Co-CEO. It's one of those things where I think, it just makes my, it makes the hairs on the back end of my neck stand up or my blood run cold. Because so often people think that will work really well. Has it, has it worked really well? And have you been doing it, were you co-CEOs all the way through? For the whole 21 plus years, Steph and I have been co-CEOs. So we were born as a business as co-CEOs. So Steph, I met well, so here, here's an interesting kind of little, I love these little synchronicity arc things. So um, I met Steph because our wives both trained to be accountants and they both trained to be accountants with an organization called BPP. So I met Steph because Sarah met Trudy, training as accountant with PwC, with BPP. That's how I met Steph. Steph found this idea of essentially taking a franchise uh, from a company called Training Camp in America and bringing it to Europe. And he had very operational background, so cook it skills, as we call it. 
And my career up until the point I met him was all about catch it. So being a salesperson, creating um, an impression in the marketplace in some way and getting people on board. So he approached me because he didn't know how to do that bit. I'd always wanted to start a business. And um, that's how we started. So it was just the two of us bootstrapped our own money um, for 21 years. And the great arc of this story is we ended up selling to BPP, which is complete coincidence but it's a lovely kind of bookend. Fab. And so I suppose the thing that I think of is in most organizations, then you're the front end and that often is the CEO and Stefan would often be the COO, but co-CEOs just means it was 50-50. It was uh, shared ownership, shared responsibility rather than one person in charge. Yeah, totally. I mean, I suppose if you want to look at it a slightly different way, I was in charge of business development, sales, marketing, go-to-market strategy. He was in charge of delivering. So hence the, the cook it, catch it that we talk about at work, which is if I, if I got the, the fish, I threw it over the fence. I just trusted him to go and make sure a great meal was conjured up, if you like, with the ingredients that I found. So the times that we had to make truly joint decisions were about something that was a strategic direction that would impact if you like both sides of those things. So launching in a new market like Germany, for instance. Um, so is it without flaws? If I'm, you know, candid, I suppose there is an element of you get stalemate or lowest common denominator possibly. If one of you wants to go in another direction and the other one can block you, you, you can get a little bit of things getting stuck. But I've seen big organizations, if I'm if I'm correct, Oracle currently has co-CEOs with Larry Ellison and I can't remember who the other person is so it's not like, it's not unheard of no 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 I, but it's, it's that it's that sort of stalemate blocking lowest common denominator thing that I've had clients where they had three people because there were three co-founders and they had a CEO but in he was only notionally the CEO um, and he said I said why are you why are you making this dis- decision so difficult and he said well if you, what you don't understand is I'm not really the CEO and he's like ah it took me 12 months to work that bit out. But once yeah. I'd worked that out, then it was okay. Well, somebody actually needs to be in charge here. I mean, I've, I've reflected on it in the past. And, I, I, you know, you sort of sometimes think, would we have done things differently if one or other of us had 100% control, if you like? Absolutely, clearly, that would have happened. You know, And whether it's off to the left or off to the right, I don't know. Would we have made some mistakes, though, where with ultimate power, it could have ruined the business, right? because somebody had been too aggressive or somebody had been too conservative, you know, that, that could also have been true. So, you know, pots and pans and all those other cliches, maybe it allowed us to make some really robust decisions you know, under difficult times. And since we were born in a recession in 2001, and then we went through 2007, eight kind of, you know, the, the credit crunch, and then we went through the pandemic and we're staring down the barrel of the next one kind of thing, you know, we've survived. And if I, think about things I'm proud of running a business the thing I'm most proud of is navigating a business through a global pandemic that's once in a hundred years hopefully once in a hundred years and coming out the other side of it stronger than we were and actually so strong that you know we then continued on the path of looking for an external investor to take us to the next level and you know for, for want of a better word but for clarity exiting in that sense to um, BPP. So just roll back to the these three or four recessions that you've navigated through. Just for the people who don't know Firebrand, what what is it that you deliver? What's your what is it where what's the niche in the marketplace that you you're the best in the world at? Accelerated certification training for IT professionals is the kind of the crispest way I can say it. And from memory that's you do it in person and you guarantee success? Yeah, so I like to simplify things, right? And I think, was it Einstein said, you want things to be as simple as possible, but not too simple. So I'm always finding simplicity in things. And I think if I look at where things are difficult, it's when people make them complicated. So when I think about education, the real, the massive simplification is asynchronous or synchronous learning. So synchronous learning is somebody's teaching you something and there's lots of different forms of that you know we experience it at school predominantly asynchronous is you teach yourself now that could be a book could be e-learning it could be finding 
videos on YouTube. One of those requires a huge amount of self-motivation from the individual, asynchronous learning, e-learning, whatever you want to call it, CD-ROMs back in the uh, early 2000s, or synchronous learning, where the instructor's taking you through things and you get the, the feedback from the instructor and the feedback the instructor can, can see what's going on, right? So someone's confused in a classroom. It doesn't matter whether that's physically in the classroom or it's in this form where it's a, a video, right? But that's the big difference. And then our particular piece of that jigsaw puzzle is um, IT is littered in a positive sense with certifications. And it's a way of calibrating people's knowledge so they know how much they've learned. And it's a way of hiring managers, recruitment agencies, knowing whether someone's got the skills to go with experience, right? It's not a substitute for experience. And we take people through that process much faster than anybody else does and it's really challenging what i love about it is it's a closed feedback loop so if you go on a normal training course with some of our competitors get to the end of that they say maybe you can go and take the exam but all the industry statistics say only 20 percent of people who could take an exam at the end of a course actually take it and it doesn't really matter how many pass or fail because taking an exam and understanding how much you learn is what's important about taking an exam not not necessarily the pass or fail of it. Um, 100% of the people are given the opportunity to take an exam when they come on Firebrand course. And that puts a huge amount of pressure on them, but also puts a huge amount of pressure on us because we've got to do a great job. We can't hide if the instructor's done a poor job of delivering that knowledge. If you go on a what I call a normal training course and the instructor's amazing and you love him and delivers all this knowledge with you know enthusiasm, you can leave it thinking you've learned loads and maybe you've learned hardly anything, right? You don't know. The person paying for the course, who's probably a boss, doesn't know. Firebrand course, everybody knows. Whether it was the instructor, whether it was the student had oversold their ability to attend a course. <laughs> oh, right, fabulous. So that's what you do and you're the best in the world at it. Talk to me about the impact of these historic recessions on your business so you know what what happened to your what happened to your business that you then over time have built some muscle around either resisting or leaning into those economic headwinds yeah so we started june 2001 so the first courses that we delivered were um august 2001 so that was kind of just around the dot-com bust and boom which again got echoes of what's going on at the moment with all the, the tech layoffs right in one sense we were lucky because we were really lean it was just steph and i we were paying ourselves out of our own savings we hadn't hired anybody and we were watching companies around us other training companies really struggling one of the reasons they're really struggling again the echoes of where we are today was they'd over invested in growth put loads of staff on board to you know to deliver all this tech knowledge that people wanted because of the, the dot-com um, boom at the time. And then that started to evaporate. So they had this big cost base. They had lovely offices, et cetera. So um, that's one of those kind of watching the marketplace. What can we learn from this? And one of the best bits of advice that we got, so I'm, I'm very fortunate to know a guy called Richard Meddings, who, again, all these wonderful coincidences, my wife went to school with his wife. And he was, at that time, I think it was the CFO of Standard Chartered Bank. And he said to me, Rob, whatever you do, make no commitments to anything. Be as lean as possible. Don't get an office. You know, don't do all the kind of the grand gestures that people talk about. Just focus on cash. And again, you know, you see all these echoes, right? When we eventually found scaling up, whatever it was, 10 years ago, cash, you know, is a quarter of the story of scaling up. And that was the first lesson that Richard Mettings taught me was worry about the cash. So we were very, very lean at the beginning tried not to hire anybody, try not to commit to leases, et cetera. So that's kind of how we started. Then 2008 came along and we sort of stared around at, you know, what was going on? What was it, how is it going to impact us? And when you're doing training, you're never quite sure how people are going to react to that in the recession. You, you've got to assume they're going to stop hiring people. And if they're not hiring people, are they going to be training people? And I can sit here and go, be mad not to train people, but I would say that, wouldn't I? So what we tried to do was balance continuing to market ourselves, but trying to find more efficient ways of doing it. 
So we definitely made some mistakes. And one of the biggest mistakes I regret at the time, we were working with an amazing PR agency called Lewis. And they'd been doing great things for us. But when we looked at our marketing budgets and we thought, well, we've got to make sure that we're keeping as much powder dry as possible. Is PR a smart thing to be doing at the moment, as opposed to putting the same amount of money into paid search where we could see the direct cause and effect of generating leads? So we stopped the PR, diverted that money into the paid search budget. And, you know, we, we navigated that recession, you know, relatively easily, didn't make anybody redundant, hit our profit. But we also learned to market, I suppose, more aggressively. So at that point, we had a huge database, for instance, that we've been accumulating through kind of all the work we've done in um, conversion rate optimization, which you and I have spoken about many times over the years, um, and realized that this database, we weren't really marketing to it as effectively as possible. And I remember, and it, it's incredible when I look back at it, we used to segment our database. So what that meant was, if we somebody approached us about, say, Cisco training, we assumed forever that they would still be interested in Cisco training. But of course, when you step back and look at the bigger picture of the IT marketplace, people with certain skills tend to sort of slip slide all over the place. You know, a networking person can become a sysadmin person, can become a cybersecurity person, might end up being a project manager. So because in some sense, I suppose we were, we were desperate, we decided to market to the whole database, all of the products. And literally, of course, we generated £300,000 of extra business, which at the time for a business who was about 10 million, so doing about two and a half million a quarter, was just incredible. And we never, we never stopped from there. But if I look back at that one, and I had my time again, I'd probably say I would continue doing the PR because that's the kind of, it's a terrible way to describe it, like the long range bombing. It kind of softens the target up, ready for the troops to go in, which is what I see as sort of paid search. And then the next one, the pandemic one, that was just a completely different, you know, that felt like the world falling off a cliff, right? And we, we all went, went through that. And you just had no idea how to navigate that kind of um, shock and awe when you're a business that you know, relies on cash, had still had no external funding. So if we were running out of money, how would we pay the bills? And the staff are absolutely amazing in that. So we we really kind of said to the staff, we're going to do everything we can to preserve our cash. So you everybody's got to think about this. And I used to do uh, a weekly keeping in touch as the pandemic, you know, started to um, accelerate and all the lockdowns came and told them every single week, everything that was going on, told them how well we were doing. Um, we took some really difficult decisions. We did make some people redundant during that. Not a, a huge number. We did put people on furlough. We asked staff to take pay cuts that were kind of calibrated against, you know, depending on how much they were getting paid. So those getting paid more, bigger cuts. But by the end of 2020, we'd, you know, we'd navigated those waters pretty well. And with a Seabells loan that we worked with Grant Thornton, as, and when we were looking for external investment, they helped us get the Seabills uh, loan. We ended 2020 in a really strong position financially and paid back all the staff that had taken pay cuts. Um, so that was a really proud moment because, and I get, I do generally get really emotional because so many people went such a, you know, the extra mile during those period and they genuinely didn't complain. Um, incredible experience. I wouldn't want to do it intentionally, if you like, but to go through it and to sort of, if I'm lying on that metaphorical deathbed and think back at you know my life and things I've achieved navigating through that and the experience the emotional experience of doing it was phenomenal by then as you rolled into the pandemic by then you did have offices because you had offices on Regent Street do you do you still have them no we were really again it's a, sometimes timing is just in your um favor isn't it so our lease so we'd been in the Regent Street office for by that point, 11 years, amazing offices, really loved them. But we we only ever had five-year leases. So it's always, roughly speaking, we get out of them. But by that point, you know, we were we a were big business, right? So we could afford a five-year lease. But we also had offices and commitments at Y Boston, which is where our training centre is, office in Cologne, office in Nijmegen. We've had offices in Copenhagen, Dubai, Sydney. We've had offices all over the world. Um, always start off when we launch a new country on a on a short lease. And then once we've proven things, we get bigger. 
But the lease on Regent Street, which was the most expensive thing he had outside of our commitments to the training facilities, expired in August 2020. So we just said to the landlord, you either do an incredible deal or we're walking away. And landlord wasn't interested in doing a deal. So we moved into an equivalent of a, of a WeWork type office called Work Life on a, on a rolling, started off being one month, but then became three months notice. So we, we knew we could always jettison that as a cost, even though it wasn't, wasn't particularly cheaper than Regent Street, but it's just had a very short window. And so how, are you, how do you feel now on offices versus remote? Oh, has your philosophy changed or is your... Don't ask me that question. <laughs> personal belief still the same? And... and this is about the only time, at least the only subject where I feel like I'm out of step somewhat with um, the majority, right? I make a conscious effort to try and stay young, if you like. I'm, I'm 56 and I've got this little personal philosophy that people get to about 40 and there's a fork in the road and they... they, they is the forks are, I know everything now. I don't need to change. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. And the world has to sort of work around me. And then people, I think, get to about 80. If they've got that attitude, they become cantankerous. <laughs> and they hate everything, right? Or the other path is, oh, wow, I'm 40. The world's amazing. There's so much variety, so much change. I've got to keep changing because it's fun to learn new things, right? So I'm, I'm definitely on that path, right? I'm not on the, the cantankerous path, I hope I'm not. But the working from home versus coming to the office thing, I find fascinating because I think the culture of businesses happens because of the physicality of people being, you know, near each other and the serendipity of bumping into somebody at that metaphorical water cooler and having a conversation that they wouldn't have because you don't have conversations like that when it's over video and it's all day long, Teams calls. And I find, you know, and I do a lot of it, clearly, all day long, Teams calls is really quite tiring versus being in an office and having lots of micro moments. And I think the culture of business is created in that crucible as opposed to virtually. Um but lots of people like working from home. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting battle. And at the moment, Fibre, not in a hugely mandatory way, is saying two, maybe three days a week in the office, two days working from home. But one of the things I've noticed recently is I've, I like to change things up a bit to keep things fresh. I've, I've been doing a bit more time at home and going to the office Wednesday, Thursday. But what I've realised is if I go to the office Wednesday, Thursday, I only, certain, I only see certain people. Because everyone's getting into this rhythm of, I'll go in, whatever, Tuesday, Wednesday. If I go in every Wednesday, Thursday, I see the people come in Tuesday, Wednesday or Wednesday, Thursday, but not Monday, Friday. And I, I, think, this is, I think we're storing up trouble for ourselves in terms of people running businesses. And I generally worry about society's mental health collectively if people don't know how to interact with people socially in those environments. You know, What's going to happen to pubs and restaurants at nightclubs, if people are becoming sort of more and more insular and if I could stay at home and I go live in the metaverse, as an example, you know, is that good for society? I, it's interesting, isn't it? I, uh, like you, feel that the culture gets created through the human connection. I also think that the commute is the tax you have to get your employees to pay. So is your culture good enough to pull people in? And you see, most of the time, what, 90%, 95% of businesses? It isn't. It's just garbage, right? Most people are at work doing a job. And frankly, if I'm going to do a job, why would I get on the train for 45 minutes when I can do it just as well or just as poorly from home in my pyjamas? Whereas if you've got an amazing business and you're on a, you're on a mission and you're changing lives with other people, it's just, it's just a totally different proposition. And to make it sort of more general, you know, I think, look, I'm married and I live with my wife. I've got no intent, you know, would I want to have a long-term relationship with somebody where there's the alternative is I could live with somebody and, you know, we spend our lives together, bring up the children, have a great, you know, have great fun together. Or do I want to be on the phone to somebody every day? Or maybe I chat to them on Zoom. These two things are totally miles apart. And so like, if you don't like your colleagues and you don't like your job and you don't like the commute, I mean, honestly, no wonder you're working from home. Get a different job. So, you know, again, some of my personal philosophies, I like separating home and work. I've always felt like that. 
And I probably learned, I learned that from my father. My father was, you know, a, a wonderful career, successful, but he always made time to be a, a dad. You know, he traveled quite a lot. So, you know, it wasn't, it was a, it was a sort of 100% home at 5.30 every night, but he'd go away for six weeks to the Philippines or something on, on a, a business trip. But, you know, I, I saw him leave the office at 5.30 and get home, whatever it was, 6.30, et cetera. And I, I learned that and I wanted to bring my kids up and be in person with them. And again, I was lucky that we started this business. Again, that's so lucky, crazy in some senses. So my daughter was about a year old and my son was three years old <laughs> when I quit my highly paid job and went and started a business. And again, love my wife for being supportive in that decision. I've known her since I was uh, 18 and she was 17. So she always knew I wanted to start a business. And I come from, I'm going to say this with um, bunny years, a long line of entrepreneurs. Um, so my great grandfather had a laundry business and my grandfather went into the laundry business and my dad assumed he would go into the laundry business. But my grandfather was a smart cookie and went hand-drawn carts, picking people's laundry up and washing them at our facility isn't going to last much longer because there's this thing called a washing machine <laughs> so my dad had to go and get a real job if you like why did i start talking about that <laughs> <laughs> a long line of entrepreneurs you always wanted to have a business and, and you were just you were saying that the timing about oh, yeah. starting your business giving up a well-paid job and it, it, that uh i do think the thing that separates entrepreneurs from the rest of the population is that attitude to risk and so, so many people would have said, I do want to start my own business uh, in the same way that I would like to learn Spanish, but I haven't yet. You know, that uh, it's, it's a wish, not a, not a compulsion. And that appetite for risk is the difference between, I think, entrepreneurs and the rest. Yeah, and that's definitely, if, if, if there's any such thing as DNA, I've got some hard wiring around taking risks and stuff. I'm quite, I think I'm quite good at, hedging my bets at the same time so when i look at risk i try to balance it and, you know what's what you know hope for the best plan for the worst kind of thing i think i kind of got that bit so it's not stupidity i'm not complete out there sort of you know take massive risks but i do like the feeling of taking a risk it's kind of there's a there's definitely some synapses or whatever firing in my brain when that happens and i mean almost selling the business to BPP is a risk, isn't it? It's that, uh, you know, any acquisition might go well, probably goes well for about a third of the people who do it. So there's, there's quite, I mean, obviously when people exit, there's some cash, but there's also the risk that it might not turn out the way you expect. Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted that we've exited to BPP. They, um, so, there's so much about it that's right. And the thing that's most right is it's great for the staff of Firebrand. That's the thing I'm I'm most proud of. You know, the um Graham, who's the CEO, we we got on with him like a house on fire. So that that made it really easy. So it wasn't kind of the money's good, but don't like the guy we're selling to. That's a bit of a compromise, you know, which would be a huge compromise. And some of it's being pragmatic. And I've had conversations with many staff members over the years because we've got a lot of people that have worked for us for a long time so a guy called russell in about two weeks time would have worked for us for 20 years but we've only existed for 21 right so he's committed a lot of yeah, his yeah. life a lot of his career to us and there's many other people that follow him have got 10 15 years loads of people with five years service we've been growing like you know weeds in the last year or so, we're, we're probably going to be somewhere near to 300 members of staff by the end of the year. So just Firebrand as, as an entity. So there's a lot of people with a lot less than five years experience, clearly. Um, but knowing that this is as good a place as I can to put Firebrand to keep it, you know, intact in, in some sense, that was really important. But the pragmatic bit is I'm 56. And when you think about you have to exit a business, you know, and I've had this conversation with people down the pub where they've gone, but you'd never sell, would you, Rob? And it's, well, just think about it logically. I've got to stop working at some point. You know, just literally, that has to be true. And if I'm going to do it... Well, you're going well, di <laughs> yeah, to exactly. die at some point. So like, if nothing else, that's going to stop you. And if I'm doing it in a controlled manner, we need to plan it. So we planned it for years. You know, We didn't sort of wake up last November when BPP approached us and went, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll do that. 
we've been building up to it again off the back of scaling up interestingly was kind of one of the things that kick-started that process so it wasn't an overnight decision um and were we lucky that bpp approached us absolutely that i had a list of potential acquirers and we were much more interested in a trade sale than a pe backed kind of way of, of, of taking us to the next level of growth and i i use evernote for my notes and when i searched in evernote for bpp i found this list that i've been building up over more than 10 years i think the list was started in like 2009 so literally bpp was the first name on the list just a coincidence again right but i, I love looking for them let's let's dive into scaling up so what what problem was picking up scaling up by vernarnish what problem did that solve and was that was that the only methodology you looked at did you stumble across it and go brilliant or did you filter it out from a shortlist the reason we know each other is because of brett right <laughs> <laughs> brett and i uh and i i, I consider him he's a, he's a dear friend he's also kind of a coach for me you know and I, I, we bounce lots of ideas off of each other I vividly remember him saying, I've just read this book called Scaling Up. You should read it. I read it. And then I said to Steph, you should read this because I think this is the answer to the problem we've got. So to answer your question, the problem we had was we weren't profitable. We had a business that was generating loads of revenue and just couldn't find a way of being repeatably profitable in a way that was interesting. So it always fell. So I'm talking about for the first, say, decade, hand to mouth. And it was partly hand-to-mouth because for us to grow, we had to invest any of our free cash in expanding the business, either through marketing or launching a new marketplace, developing products, hiring salespeople, the instructors. So every time you do that, you kind of you can't be profitable and invest for your own growth at the same time, unless maybe if you're in a software business or something, you can do that. When you're a people business like we are, it's just so hard. So um, Steph read it and said, yeah, the thing that's beautiful about scaling up, and I have literally sent email to, to Vern saying this, that guy has created so much wealth. He's, I think he's more altruistic than Bezos, Bill Gates, because he's creating wealth for other people and gets no slice of it apart from they bought one of his books, which I think is incredible, right? <laughs> and I, I think he should be so proud of himself. And I, and I literally sent him an email saying that. He's very humble in, in, in when he replied to me, but... We just literally took it as a blueprint and said, right, let's just do everything. Let's try and make everything in this book work. And everything that sticks will be the firebrand version of scaling up. And we renamed bits of it as we went through it. And some of it we just couldn't get to work for all sorts of different reasons. And then we just became profitable. And the rest is both history and the future, I suppose. And if you were to pull out some things that worked for you, that were different from before you'd read the book? What, uh, what were some of those things that did work for you? The most, if, again, because I like to sort of try to do this reduction thing of getting down to, you know, what is, what's really made the difference? It's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? And you sort of think it's 10 things. Well, okay, if you're forced to have one thing, what's the one thing? And I'd say it's the meeting rhythm and getting the cadence of a business I'm forcing the business to meet. We call them sparks. They call them huddles, I think. Um, if you get the business to meet every single day for that, whatever, nine minutes or two minutes past nine, whatever the number is that you pick, that is the biggest game changer on the assumption that people attend that meeting and perform their responsibility, which is to think about what's stopping them, to have a metric that's meaningful, and to tell everybody else what they're doing that on that day. If you do just that one thing, I'd be amazed if your business doesn't fly, right? Because... Do you know what? I think that daily huddles, for people who don't succeed, I think getting persuading teams, even just the executive team to meet every day is the hardest thing for me to do. And so it's fascinating that... Uh, I mean, I've had CEOs who said to me, I didn't want to meet. You forced me, you bent my hand up by my back, you pressured me, you bullied me, and then we did it. And, and then we realized what a difference it made. What? <laughs> so it's fascinating that out of the whole thing, one thing you pick is the thing that most people seem to have the most difficulty saying yes to. Because it's about communication, isn't it? Think about it. It's just a vehicle for communicating. And, you know, here's 
here's the inconvenient truth about it. If you do it properly, you are vulnerable because you're telling everybody else, I'm not doing very well. I don't understand how to solve this problem. My, you know, my numbers, you know, whether it's a salesperson, whatever it might be, oh dear. And then the fear of the next day saying the same thing. So I think it's got a positive connotation. And I don't think scaling up really touches on this point, but I think it scares people. So if you force them to do it, they get used to the fear, but then they have to do something about it because they can't keep turning up saying, if you're a salesperson, I'm missing my number, I'm missing my number, I'm missing my number. You know, if you're marketing, marketing, I'm not getting enough leads, I'm not getting enough leads, I'm not getting enough leads. Eventually, you're either going to walk away or you're going to fix the problem, aren't you? And hopefully what you're asking your peers is, how do I fix this problem? And then you've got collective problem solving. I just think it's so amazing how impactful it is. So no, you can't be in a team without being vulnerable. Totally. So that that's that was huge. Lots of other things, you know, are sort of become a close second, but not as impactful. So one of the things that I really liked doing, and this is a this is a bit more philosophical, a bit more reflective, but it it can become powerful. So we did the mission the Mars thing fairly early on, which is go find the values of your business. So we called that R code, which is kind of a play on the software development training, R code being, you know, how we live. And I did research around having values. And one of the things I discovered was companies often tempted to have six or seven of them. And then staff, 80% cannot remember more than three or four. So I forced the company to only have four. So we went through the Mission to Mars exercise and then we sort of reduced it and distilled it down. So we ended up with four. And again, I forced the company to pick four words so that all you've got to remember is four words, but those words have got meaning around them. So, you know, they have a sentence, but there's four words. And I was aiming for, if I could, if I stopped anybody in that metaphorical corridor, be able to say, what are our values? And they go, open, fun, hunger, care. And then use those values to make decisions. Make decisions about how you treat your customers, how you treat your staff, how you navigate whatever situation is, and try to be true to those values. When you're recruiting, can you find those values in the person that you're recruiting, the things you do? So we've mapped our quarterly themes around one of the four values, which again, wonderful coincidence, we had four and that's four quarters in the year, et cetera. So that's really beautiful. And it's beautiful because, so we were, how long would we go? 12 or 13 years, I suppose. So we built a business without having values in the literal sense of them being written down. But clearly you have values, which is the point of that exercise is it surfaces them. And when they appeared kind of out of the, the fog i thought i want to work for that company with those values which was which was good it would have been a bit awkward if i didn't and that's sort of reflecting back what we'd built and the way that it'd come out i, I just again i like the journey as opposed to the destination so I, I have to enjoy myself when i'm doing things and that was a really blissful moment when they, they sort of appeared there's some time where back in the past where you and i've been speaking about sales and marketing and you shared with me some data that I've then anecdotally shared with many, many companies. So I wanted to try and dig into that with you, which is you'd, you'd plotted, well, if you let me anyway, um, you had plotted the response time of your sales organization to inbound leads, and you'd been able to derive some operational metrics or, or KPIs around that. Can we, can we chat about that for a little bit? If that's, if that's not a trade secret. No, it's not because, of, well, A, like all my best ideas, I nicked it from somebody else. <laughs> right. I think there's, the, the whole of that story actually is, is, a, is a bit more than I think you and I have ever spoken about. So when I started Firebrand with Steph, I'd just been working for a company called Onyx Software. Which is where you and I and Brett know each other from, indeed. Now, Brett Rains is the CEO of Cloud Direct. And I don't know if you remember this, but Onyx prided themselves on calling leads really, really quickly because they wanted to demonstrate that their CRM software, from a process engineering perspective, could get information put on a website 
through to the right salesperson as quickly as possible. And they went the extra mile. They used to do it 24-7. So if you, if you left your details on Anx's website three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, you'd get a phone call from somebody, right? Now, within minutes, in 2000. Well, before that, I started working for them in 1998. So it's, I mean, it's like that sort of pre-internet. I mean, that's how long ago it was, you know. Well, if you're being a pedant, it's not pre-internet, obviously. But no, but but I mean, it was. I, I just remember at the time I was joining Rackspace in 2001, there were fewer than a million people online in the UK, right? So it might not be pre-internet, but certainly pre-Google. I mean, Alta Vista was your search engine of choice. So I'd seen how powerful that was when we started Firebrand. We again, I sort of chuckle and say we use this CRM system called Goldmine. And we still use Goldmine. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's a, that's a completely different subject. I mean, if I, let's not pick the scab off that one today. That could be another podcast. <laughs> okay. So uh, because I'm a, I'm a nerdy techie guy, I figured out how to plumb the website, which I was also the website. I was the web, website master back in the days of Microsoft front page. I used to change the code, upload the web pages. I figured out how to plumb our website into Goldmine so that um, the information for the website got into Goldmine. And I figured out how to get it to pop alerts up so that when I was the only salesperson, which essentially I was the only salesperson when we started, I would see when people landed. And what I actually figured out was, and th- this, if this is a trade secret, it just demonstrates how illogical most people are. If somebody leaves information on the website, there are a few things that are true at that moment in time. They are looking at a computer. Then it was a literal computer. Now it's the computer in your pocket. If they're looking at a computer, there's a phone next to that computer because they're sat at their desk at work. Or now they're looking at their phone, which is the computer. They're holding the phone. If they've left their information on the website, that's because they're thinking about the problem they want to solve, which they think you're the solution for. So there's a couple of truths here. I'm sat by a phone. I'm thinking about it. Now, why wouldn't you want to talk to them at that moment in time? Because if you wait 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, an hour, where are they now? One thing you don't know is where they are now. They might still be at their computer. They could have gone to the loo, gone for a coffee, gone for lunch, gone into a meeting. So if you phone them at the moment, they've left that information you're almost likely to talk to them because, and they want to talk to you about it. They're not distracted. So I'd started Firebrand with that intent. The bit of the story that you're referencing is I then found some research and I think I've got the PDF, by the way, if I've never sent it to you, I'll send it to you, where somebody did loads of analysis on this and they discovered the propensity to sell was much higher if you called them within 20, 30 minutes and I suspect most of that is down to the fact you actually got to speak to them as opposed to they were somewhere else. So we engineered the business to, to allow it to happen. And then we have, again, because I like my little simplicity, salespeople know lead speed is really important. And we measure them against 30 minutes. Can you get to those leads within 30 minutes? And we've got an expectation within working hours for us. And then within, the, so within 30 minutes, we expect them to contact 70%, if you see what I mean. So the aim is 70% are contacted within 30 minutes. And then we've done loads of mapping because we've got so much data to see what's the likelihood of talking to them, what's the likelihood of, because you can you can tell you've spoken to them because of the length of the call that came off the back of it. And then you can also start to map in, if you don't talk to them, how many times do you then have to call to get hold of them? So when you start to really get into the, the process of this, there's loads of efficiencies that are generated by calling quickly. So I call you quickly, more like to speak to you, qualified in, qualified out, answer your questions, whatever. That's one phone call. If I call you slowly, that's still one phone call. But if I don't speak to you, now I've got to make three, four, five, when do I give up phone calls? I may never speak to you. I may take five phone calls. But if I can only make X phone calls in a day, if every single phone call I make, I speak to somebody. If every single phone call I make, I don't speak to somebody. How many more conversations do you have versus how many times do you try to call somebody? So when you start to really get into the, the nuts and bolts of it, it dry. it's a bit like the, the meeting rhythm of sparks. 
cadence goes up, you just start to sell more. And what happens when salespeople sell more? They feel more confident. And if they feel more confident, they're better on the next phone call. Marketing's work is more effective because they're selling more against the same number of leads. So then you create more money, spend more money on marketing, hire more salespeople. And it's it's just a beautiful little kind of storm in a positive sense of kind of doing more and more with the same amount, right? You've got the same number of salespeople, you've got the same amount of marketing spend, you just generate more out of it. Um, so I don't mind the rest of the industry knowing that there's a secret there, as long as my competitors don't. And do you know what? They don't know because we benchmark them in a very loose sense. When we get new starters on board, we get them to call as many um, or to leave their details on as many competitors' websites as possible to find out how they behave, how do they talk to people, you know, are they consultative salespeople, et cetera? How quickly do they call? And I did this exercise as, as part of my research for sort of agreeing to start Firebrand with Steph back in 2000. And then it was terrible. So I, I, at the time, I thought to myself, do you know what, even if Firebrand didn't have a better product than the marketplace, I'd beat them just on calling the leads quicker <laughs> because I, w- I will change the conversation before they've spoken to a competitor, I will move the goalposts somewhere else. And we had some great goalposts to move. You know, you're going to get trained faster than everybody else, and you're going to be certified on the course. Once they've heard that, they either really didn't want the skills, don't want the certs, or they're going, well, everybody else looks weak compared to us. Our competitors would often say, here's a 50 cent discount, give us your credit card. If we got to them late, they'd already booked somebody else. Somebody's Got to Be the Most Expensive, It May As Well Be You, is a great book to read. You, it sounds to me that those guarantees or brand promises that you've put in place allow you to charge a premium in the marketplace. Good. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's, I, what, the thing is, it's nice, you, you know, uh, you read a piece of theory and then you meet a company that has put it all in place and are generating the returns that you would expect from the theory that you've read but it's also again about enjoying yourself if your value proposition is price it's, you've only got one direction to travel and it's down and then you've only got one way of selling which is we've got what you want we're cheaper than whoever it is you compete with and again to be candid anybody can sell like that because it's not selling it's it's kind of a version of order taking when you've got a product that is interesting and complicated and creates value for somebody, you cannot sell on price, partly because you're more expensive, but it kind of doesn't work. Um, I just find it, it as an intellectual challenge, it's more interesting to have a great product that's got bells and whistles, whatever you want to call it, and it's got a premium price as much because of what's contained within it. You know, it's, it's quality at a price. It's, you know, you can't have, what's that thing? was it cheap fast good pick two you know you can't you can't have all three and then, you know that's the, and that's the place we have in the marketplace and i love having that place in the marketplace i love the you know you talked about there about accelerating the cadence because i've never never found a sales organization hitting its numbers without <laughs> enough activity <laughs> And conversely, I've never found a sales team that hits that that misses its numbers if they're doing enough of the right things. It, and it's just that getting a team together and getting them to do enough of the right things, knowing what those right things are. I mean, I just I, I remember I remember having this amazing conversation with somebody who who weren't growing as fast as they would like. And when we got into their sales process, he said, "Right, I deliberately don't ring anybody for forty eight hours because I want them to think we're busy." I said, "How's that going for you?" And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, is your close rate 100%? No. Okay, right. You are deliberately destroying your business because you've got some mad idea that people will only work with you if you're busy, as opposed to that you might have a solution to their problem. Yeah, so there's so many simple things you could do in business. And if you're not doing the simple things, everything else you're doing is noise, it's complexity, it's finding excuses for kind of why the other thing doesn't work. And uh, yeah, I, I know there's nothing unique about this, but product, people, and processes. Um, and I think people overlook defining what their product is and they try to be all things to all people and then they're nothing to nobody. And if, you know, if there's one thing I've, I've constantly tried to go is what's the product 
And the product isn't an IIT squared CISP course. It's the package of accelerated learning and everything that goes around it. The content within it is not the product. I know it is in the sense of that's what the customer wants to buy. The product is how we packaged it up. And so much of the language around that hasn't changed in the meaning sense for 21 years. Now, the bit I love is I love constraints. And this does people's heads in, right? So I'm a child of just past the punk movement as indie music came along and people wanted to create their own musical kind of output. So and I've been big into guitar bands, like you know, a whole my whole life essentially. And there's one band that came along in the 90s called the White Stripes. And Jack White and Meg White, they constrained themselves to be guitar and drums. And again, beautiful coincidence, their color scheme is red, white, and black, which is the same as Firebrand. And they created three or four albums constrained to those two instruments that created a huge body of unique music, you know, great commercial success in sort of in a way that is counterintuitive. You know, most bands, they expand and they bring in keyboards and orchestras and all sorts of different things. And I really love that sort of constraining thing because the constraining thing drives creativity. And that's what people overlook. And another great example of it is absolute vodka. What does the <laughs> advert look like that you see in a magazine? I can't remember what it looks like at all. You know what it looks like. Right. <laughs> you can't say you don't know. Everybody knows. It's a vodka bottle on a page, right? That's it. Apart from they've done, the last time I checked, I think it was two and a half thousand different versions of it. And what normally happens with a marketing director when they come into an organization, they rip up whatever came before them and they lose all the brand memory. So the creativity is about how do you build on brand memory in such a way that people recognize the thing but don't get confused. And one of the biggest compliments I've been paid in terms of from a branding perspective, a friend of mine was a partner at KPMG and Firebrand's name happens to come up in a conversation with he was with somebody else. And the other person at KPMG said, oh, the accelerated learning people. And that was like, that's the call and response I'm looking for. And that stuff only happens if you're prepared to be disciplined. Again, it's a bit like the meeting rhythm and go, right, this is what we stand for. Do not deviate from these things. Find new ways of saying it, totally. And that's where the creative streak can come in. I, I think that takes you back to the observation you made earlier, which is that the one thing you should have done is carried on with your PR to, to keep that. It only works if you've got the clarity around Firebrand Accelerated Learning Company. You've got to get that clarity. You've got to put the work in to get the clarity, as you said. Yeah, and that's the product piece define your product, have great people, have great processes. Those three things combined, and if you're disciplined enough to do them, you're going to get a you're going to travel a hell of a long way down your journey. And it it reminds me of Jim Collins the flywheel. Really difficult to get them moving. Once you get them moving, relatively speaking, easy to keep them moving. You let them stop, you're back to the beginning again. And you know the, the work that Jim Collins has done, and you know, you could almost pick any of his books, right? But it's just so many beautiful insights where you're kind of going, oh, I just, you know, it's true. <laughs> it's just no one's ever pointed it out to you. <laughs> and then when they do, you can't unsee it. Well, and so uh, great segue to, as we get towards the end here, what, what is it you know now you wish you'd known 21 years ago? The lottery numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a oh! You should warn me. You're going to ask me that question. I can't. There isn't something that sort of jumps off my so my tongue, as it were. I think partly because I do enjoy the journey as much as wanting the destination. So I, I'm not a I'm not a regretful person. You know, I love making mistakes because I learn from them and not making enough. Okay, here we go. This is a totally meta way of saying this. Not making enough mistakes. There we go. That's that's what I've learned. I should have made more mistakes because we would have got further faster if we'd made more mistakes okay fabulous and you know we've talked about scaling up and you've mentioned jim collins what books have been helpful on your journey that we haven't yet mentioned or that you think people should read or 
the first book I read that really kind of resonated with me was um, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And I, I read that in the 90s. And again, there's this beautiful simplicity of find that bridgehead and then go mind that and not try to be everything to everybody. That that really resonated with me. And I, I, I'm not even sure you can get it on like Kindles and stuff. I think you might actually have to buy a book, <laughs> which is that shows you how old it is. Um, that's a great book. And I'd, I'd always tell people read Scaling Up first because that's the, the jumping off point for so many other things, right? So all the, the Jim Collins stuff really uncovered that because of Scaling Up. But um, Crossing the Chasm's right up there. Um, I love The Choice Factory by um, Richard Chotton, who that's all about the psychology of buying. Another book, and again, it's a, it's a guy, a book, um, Right to Sell by Andy Maslin is just, if you, writing is so important, you know, if I'm a salesperson, if I'm a marketing person, community with customers, I'm right to sell. So it's, it's right W to sell as opposed to the right to sell. Um, that's a great bit of um, pragmatic, how do you write great copy? That applies to so many people. We've taught that many, many times at Firebrand. We've had Andy come in and de- deliver training for us. We've had him on um, we, one of our sort of bite-sized learning things internally. And we've trained it across the business as well. We've not, we've not just trained it to salespeople. I've always, already mentioned Great by Choice. What else? Oh, Making Website Win. Wins. Making Websites Win by um, Conversion Rate Optimization. What are they called? Conversion Rate Yes. So, yeah, no, conversion rate optimization, CRO, they coined the phrase. I've had them on the podcast. Yeah. And th- what's great about that book and the headline, I think, they, I'm sure they tested the headline, right? <laughs> because I know what they're like. But if you read it, it's a great business book. And it really talks about how do you communicate the effectiveness of your product's value to people. But I think the headline, if you'd read it because you wanted to know how to improve your website. If you read it, there's so much more about that book. And it's free. And there's a podcast of the whole thing. And you can download the PDF. So, you know, what's not to love about that? And then the other thing, which is the slightly controversial thing I say to you is, I love reading the business pages in newspapers. And then you famously don't read newspapers. Famously. Not even infamously. Famously. <laughs> yeah, well. That's stumped you, hasn't it? No, I, well, I do. I do. Uh, I do read. I do get. I suppose there's a digest the week I get. I still get a physical magazine each week of the week. And Google does feed me stuff. But I mean, it's years since. Actually, I did. I've just been to the Philippines and back to uh, spend some time with a client in the Philippines. And so as, as I went through Heathrow Airport, I picked up several newspapers and I actually quite enjoyed going through the newspaper it was really because i used to spend half a day on a sunday reading the sunday times and i just thought i could do something more useful with my life this half a day that i've got spare i I say this at work so i'm not being sort of disingenuous i worry that 20 year olds don't read the business pages of newspapers and don't really understand how interconnected everything is and learn about you know it's it's very thematic you have to layer this knowledge up if you read the sunday times business pages once that's useless. It's the read the business page every single day, just the business page, not all the rest of the fluff. Read the Sunday one. You get loads of domain information and the language that people use, and you see themes developing. And then more importantly, if you're the sort of person that's going to end up selling to the C-suite, as the cliche goes, what are you going to talk to that CEO about? Because that CEO knows all about business and knows what's going on in the world, knows what their macroeconomic trends are, if you don't have a body of knowledge to have a conversation with, what you're talking about is, in our case, do you want to buy a training course? Because you've got no way of knowing what their business pressure is. And I don't know a shortcut to that. I don't have a training course I can send somebody on that. Now you've got business knowledge. Business knowledge happens because you're running a business or you're reading about a business. End of story. Well, you have to go fishing and see whether they like fishing or football or... I'm a celebrity, get me out of here or something like that. But <laughs> hopefully you overlap, but you might not. You're right. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Dom. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.